This is CNN Tonight. I'm Jim Shudo, live from Lviv, Ukraine, along with the great Laura Coates in the U.S. The Pentagon tonight says that tens of thousands of Russian troops have now amassed in eastern Ukraine. One of Putin's commanders claims their new goal is to take full control of not just the Donbass region in the east, but southern Ukraine to provide a land corridor to Crimea and perhaps go further. Still, President Zelensky expressed hope and defiance tonight. We will defend ourselves as long as necessary to break this ambition of the Russian Federation. The armed forces of Ukraine continue to deter attacks by Russian invaders in the east and south of our country. And I am grateful to each of our defenders who are bravely holding on. In this new offensive, the fierce battles have already started. They're continuing tonight in the Donetsk region. One official there says 42 more settlements have come under Russian control just over the last 24 hours. But Ukrainian forces say they are fighting to get them back. This is the push and pull of the front lines. The Russians also launched more airstrikes on the southern port city of Mariupol earlier. And an estimated 100,000 people still remain stranded in that war zone. And another staggering number. The mayor of Mariupol told me today that he believes that 20,000 civilians have already been killed there so far, 20,000 in two months of war. And look at this new drone video we just got of a village on the outskirts of the capital, Kyiv. Mostchun, absolutely obliterated by the Russians. Those are civilian homes you're watching right there before those Russians withdrew for the new phase of their invasion, Laura, in the east. I mean, it's all really incomprehensible to see those images, Jim. And we're going to come back to you in just a second. But also tonight, two Russian executives found dead within 24 hours, along with their wives and daughters, begging the question of whether Vladimir Putin's fingerprints are perhaps on these deaths as well. Plus, receipts are coming back to haunt two Trump loyalists pertaining to the insurrection. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has been radio silent today at at least publicly radio silent, on being caught in a total lie about whether he was going to tell Trump to resign after January 6th. The tapes, frankly, keep on coming. And there's even more that surfaced today, along with Trump's new response to them tonight. And GOP Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene could be in jeopardy of being disqualified from ever running for office again over her alleged role in January 6th. This is what she testified to today. I was asking people to come for a peaceful march, which is what everyone is entitled to do, but I was not asking them to actively engage in violence or any type of action. But, of course, this is what she said two weeks before the insurrection. You can't allow it to just transfer power peacefully like Joe Biden wants and allow him to become our president. Not sure what the air quotes mean, but there's a lot to take apart there. But we also start with ha- what's happening on the front lines in Ukraine. And Jim, we've seen, frankly, so many other evacuees that have gotten on trains to make it to safer territory, like where you are in Lviv. I remember thinking about in Poland and the images at the train stations of strollers that were put there by people knowing that women and children were arriving and needed some place to put their children, to carry their belongings. And we now see the tragedy of really how few civilians seeming to be allowed out of Mariupol. Are there other conclusions here other than 
the Russians are choosing to make people stay there and suffer? Or is there some other explanation that you're hearing on the ground, Jim? The evidence of the prosecution of this war is that civilians are part of the target, that Russia in these cities does not want to let the civilians leave easily and safely. We've seen that in evidence of the attacks on civilian corridors, even when they're agreed to, or in this case, where they're just simply not agreed to. And by the way, beyond what happens when there are discussions of possible paths out of these cities is what happens before and during, and that is Russia's continued bombardment of the cities, of civilian areas, really the leveling of them. We showed that aerial view just of that one village outside of Kiev. It looked like a tornado went through there, but that, that was not an act of God. That was an act of man. It was an act of the weapons of the Russian military, and it's one we've seen out play out from village to city across this country. Civilians are one of Russia's targets of this invasion. And increasingly, even the idea, the prospects of the ability to leave, the choice feels increasingly illusory to everyone watching this, as if mercy is being offered, but never really truly extended to leave. And day after day, Jim, we see video of the smoke that's rising from the devastation. Look at what we're seeing right now. And that is Mariupol. And we can never lose sight of the fact that really there are still thousands and thousands of people who are inside of what we're viewing. And I know you spoke with the city's mayor. What would it take to get people out of there? Hey, what a vision he offered us today from inside that city to say that in two months of war, 20,000 civilians are killed and efforts, frankly, and we've seen evidence of this by the Russians to destroy the evidence of those crimes. What they want there, they want a path out that is somehow supervised by a third country, right? And they're begging for this kind of help, but there's no sign that there's any sort of plan for that to happen. So understandably, uh, they're frustrated, uh, they're concerned, uh, and, and they're losing hope, right, that there will be a safe way forward. Have a listen. So at the moment, um, uh, we have people waiting for evacuation. Uh, we would like to evacuate uh, the civilians that are sheltering in Azovstal. And we uh, need one clear day of a ceasefire to evacuate those people. However, we have not been able to so far. And um, I feel as if my heart's been torn out. My life, my family, uh, we, we lived there. This was our life. And for me and, ten, and tens of thousands of Mariupol residents, it is extremely painful to see so many dead and, and the city destroyed. You heard him there. They just want one day, one clear day without fighting, without being attacked by Russian forces to get the people out. That is all the mayor and the people of Mariupol are asking for at this point. But Russian leaders, commanders showing no interest in doing so, and a Russian general came out clearly today saying why even that bare minimum of humanity will not happen. Vladimir Putin wants, he said, this general, very publicly, total control of southern Ukraine. Sam Kiley is live in Dnipro in the central part of this country. How, Sam, and you've been coming to this country for a long time and observed this war for uh, a long time since the beginning, uh, this latest invasion, how has the fighting there shifted in the last several days? I think it shifted in two important ways, Jim. The first is, as was uh, uh, said in advance by the Russians, they are focusing their efforts, their principal effort is in bombarding at the moment towns in the east 
of government-held Ukrainian territory in the area known as Donbass, on the edge of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. And there has been some back and forth, some winning and some losing of territory. You mentioned 42 settlements that have been captured by the Russians. Captured, I think, is quite a difficult word to assign to those sort of artillery exchanges, really. There's very little movement of infantry yet in this war because uh, they are following, particularly the Russians, this long-range tactical uh, strikes that uh, the Soviets have pioneered and then they're going to try and follow up with tanks and a heavy armour. I think the Ukrainians will be preparing to uh, meet them when they try to do just that. We haven't yet seen any significant Ukrainian response except to just try to hold the lines. And then we've seen an uptick in violence along that southern coastal route that the Major General you referred to there said that the Russians were likely <clears throat> or at least intent on pushing all the way to the border with Moldova conceivably. Again, I think mm. that that is... Uh, in large part, probably an effort to try and draw off some Ukrainian pressure, because this is all about trying to make the Ukrainians spread their troops, spread their troops and get them uh, into environments where they can be overwhelmed by the superior numbers, at least, of Russian forces, even if they're not as competent or indeed as well supplied as NATO supplies are pouring in. Which brings us to Mariupol. Why is it, for example, that they are still uh, focusing their efforts on Mariupol so much? Well, there's a thousand Ukrainian troops hanging on in there that the Russians really need uh, to either get out of there, get them to surrender, before they can release a very large amount of troops to try to push north, because that, in the end, is going to be their agenda, to try and cut off the Ukrainian forces. But for now, they're being bound up in that fight for Mariupol still. Jim? Yeah. It's a great point, right? Because if you are focused on the southeast for now, and then you start talking about the southwest and going all the way to Moldova, <clears throat> then do Ukrainians believe that and feel they have to shift some of their energy and resources there? Sam Kiley, good to have you there in Dnieper. Thanks so much. Well, the British Prime Minister says it is a realistic possibility that Putin wins this war. But I got a very different assessment when I spoke with a member of the Biden administration this morning. Have a listen. Ultimately, uh, Putin will see that this is not the end game he bargained for. If thousands of body bags are coming home, if his economy is contracting by double digits, if inflation is up to 20 percent, if the shelves are empty, if people can't travel, if his country's in default, if Russia's a pariah state, uh, that's not a win for Putin. That, the Biden administration view. Let's take that question and others to former U.S. Army Commanding General, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. So to that first question, uh, Mark, you, you've been a skeptic uh, from the beginning, and rightly so, uh, really in a lot of cases, of Russia's ability here to, to, win, the, to win the war and, and to gain the ground that they want to gain. Do you take... Boris Johnson's view that the Russians can grind the Ukrainians down or the administration view? I, I take the administration's view, but for different reasons, Jim. I'm not going to talk about the domestic politics inside of Russia or what Mr. Putin can or cannot accept from his population uh, when body bags start coming home. What I'm talking about and what I've been talking about from the very beginning is the military capacity of the Russian force. You know, you've had this General Minikeyev, who is the commander of Russia's central military district, the largest military district, saying, you know, and that's the one that consists of the Volga and the Euros and the Siberian district. I actually met this guy when he was a younger general officer, saying that the new uh, strategic objective is to get to Odessa and beyond. I will say now what I said earlier in this campaign, they can't do it. 
They do not have the forces to, to mm. do it. They do mm. not have the capacity to do it. When you take a look at some of the areas that they're talking about in the South, you're talking about the town of Mikalea, which they have not taken yet. 500,000 in the population. It's the size of Kansas City, Missouri. Odessa, 900,000. That's the size of Indianapolis. It's 420 miles from Mariupol to Odessa. They can't sustain the supply lines for that long a time. And no matter how many forces we are saying are piled up on the uh, eastern border getting ready to go into the country, they just do not have the size of a force to take over these cities. They've, they've proven that. The Russians have proven they can't take Mariupol, uh, which is a pretty big city in and of itself. They've been thwarted there, even though they have killed a lot of civilians, murdered a lot of civilians. They still haven't controlled the road junctions going in and out of there. So, yeah, I, I don't buy Boris Johnson's commentary, uh, different commentary than what the White House is giving out. Okay, one of the issues in the north around Kyiv where the Russians failed was, and you, you highlighted this, supply lines. They just couldn't get the ammo, the fuel, the food, uh, and the command and control to those troops there. So they pulled back. The advantage in the east for the Russians is that they're closer to the Russian border, right? I mean, they, they could drive the stuff right across and get to those forces there. Do, do the Russians have an advantage in the east that they did not have in the north? It is certainly a shorter distance, but it's still over 100 miles, Jim, and they don't have the equipment. But most importantly, they don't have the people. Uh, we have seen uh, so many Russian soldiers killed. We have seen a lack of leadership on the part of the senior level, middle level, and junior level. They have not proven themselves to be a good combined arms force. So yes, they certainly have the artillery, uh, but that gets to the package that the administration and NATO is providing with Ukraine uh, now in this second part of the war. Uh, they can the Ukrainians can counter this with counter artillery fire. Russians cannot maneuver in this area. Ukraine is on their home turf. They have home field advantage on this. They know how to maneuver. And they have not been successful yet in the east. They've tried several re uh, reconnaissance and force missions in the, in the Donbass so far. As Sam mentioned earlier, they have hit with artillery several towns. But their maneuver has not been such where they've taken over towns, where they control towns. And in fact, they're not moving all that much. And I personally think Ukraine is playing mm -hmm. it very smart, the Ukrainian generals. They're allowing them to think that they're moving just a little bit. And uh, the counterattacks by the Ukrainian forces are soon to come. Yeah. And, and these are old battle lines. Uh, they've been fighting there for, for eight years. So, so the Ukrainians know them well. Uh, General Mark Hurtling, always good to have you on. Pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Ahead, there is great suspicion. After two Russian oligarchs were just found dead with their families, sadly, just 24 hours apart, under extremely mysterious circumstances. What does a Russian journalist who knows Putin and Russia make of these deaths? What's behind them? That's coming up. So listen to this. Two Russian executives and their families found dead just a day apart. Both cases are now being investigated as murder-suicides, but the facts are suspicious. 51-year-old Vladislav Avayev was a former vice president of a Russian bank. He, his wife, and 13-year-old daughter 
were found in their Moscow apartment on Monday. Russian police released this four-second clip of the crime scene. On Tuesday, then, Russian oil executive Sergei Protosenya was found outside his home near Barcelona in Spain, his wife and daughter found inside dead as well. What's happening here? Here to weigh in on these mysteries, author of All the Kremlin's Men, Mikhail Zygar. Mikhail, good to have you on tonight. You have interviewed various people in Putin's inner circle through the years. Tell us what you make of this, because in Russia, when deaths like this happen, there is often a story behind it. Uh, You know, I'm not a huge fan of uh, conspiracy theories, and um, I won't... um haste to to make a, a conclusion that uh, there is a m- mysterious series of, of murders uh, probably it's it, it might have been a coincidence so far because one death is in Moscow another in, the, in Barcelona uh, but it's definitely very important how two of those uh, deaths could be perceived by by Russian elites and by by Russian businessmen by Russian bureaucracy who stay in Moscow because uh, a lot of people have um, have an alternative in mind uh, to leave or to stay. A lot of people um, belonging to Russian il- uh, business elite are shocked by the war, and most of them are not supporting the war because they understand that they are losing. They they're going to lose everything they have. Uh, so probably for them that's a huge shock. And um, having in mind an option to leave or to stay. Uh, they see those terrible deaths. And uh, probably that could be uh, perceived as some kind of a warning or um, a mm. very bad, bad sign for them. So uh, may, uh, many people so in you're Moscow, saying I'm, I'm sure, are afraid of those deaths. The fact, particularly the fact that one of these took place in Spain, because Putin, and again, to, to, to your point, we, we don't know the circumstances behind it, but we do know that in the past, Putin has gone after his enemies and critics outside the country. If you think of Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, or Sergei Skripal, also in England in Salisbury in 2018, and, and Navalny as he was flying inside the country, uh, you're saying that people inside Russia today who might think they'd be safe out of the country wouldn't be so convinced of that anymore. Yeah, I I would not compare uh, th- those two guys to uh, to Navalny or Skripal. I think uh, these are um, mid-level managers of state-owned corporations. But state-owned owned corporations are uh, probably could be a subject of uh, Western sanctions. So so everyone is nervous. Uh, definitely, the, uh, mm-hmm. it could be suicide as well because you know uh, a lot of people are really nervous those days depressed, yeah. devastated, uh, losing everything they had, and probably heavily drinking. Uh, but mm, that's mm. a very bad, bad sign of a uh, moral shape of Russian uh, business elite, I would say. Mm. You have written about uh, what you phrased as a collective Putin. Uh, tens, perhaps hundreds of people uh, trying to figure out what decisions Putin needs to make. Explain what that is, how that works. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's very funny, uh, and you know, and it still works. Unfortunately, it still works. Uh, that's a system created by Putin, um, when everyone, every single part of the huge army of Russian bureaucrats is trying to guess what their bosses want them to do or want them to say. Uh, they don't have to to make um, 
concrete orders. They, they just have, uh, the bosses have to hint or put it himself. Um, he might uh, say, do what you have to do. And um, all of um, all of the bureaucrats would try to guess and try to understand. And we saw a perfect mm -hmm. example of, the, of how that collective Putin works uh, during the infamous Security Council uh, that happened two days before the yeah. beginning of the war, when all the members of Putin's inner circle were, were trembling and shaking, uh, trying to guess what he wants them to say. Yeah. Well, and we can see the consequences of that form of decision-making in Russia's troubles here during the invasion of Ukraine. Mikhail Zygar, thanks so much. Thank you. So, Laura, we get a look inside the Kremlin there. It's fascinating. What do you have coming up? It really is. And thinking about the psychology of what that looks like, that leadership and the idea of how to force people to do what you want without lifting a finger, saying a word, very concerning. Jim, we're going to look at mm. what's happening here stateside at one of the most controversial members of Congress who went under oath today to testify about her alleged connection to the insurrection. You see her right there, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but she couldn't seem to remember a whole lot, Jim. We're going to have a legal advisor to the Georgia voters who were trying to get the congresswoman disqualified from ever being able to run again. I wonder how he thinks today went. We'll talk to him next. Should Marjorie Taylor Greene be labeled an insurrectionist and then barred from Congress? Well, that's the question at the heart of a hearing that the Congresswoman testified in today over whether to block her from re-election, that due to her actions reportedly leading up to January 6th. The outcome of this case could actually have quite broad implications for other Republicans, including Donald Trump. But there was little lawyers could frankly get out of her today. I don't remember. I do not remember. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Well, I want to bring in John Bonifaz, who's the president of Free Speech for People, one advocacy group challenging Green's candidacy. Listen, you saw she didn't remember a whole lot in those moments, she says. But we do remember, of course, there's Article um, sec, uh, sec, the 14th Amendment, excuse me, Section 3, which is the primary basis for what's happening right now in terms of the collective memory of the U.S. about civil war and those who were writing for the Confederates saying, we don't want you to be a part of Congress. That's the foundation of why this is even here. But as you know, the burden really is on those who are challenging her candidacy to prove that she, in fact, was the equivalent of, say, a member of the Confederacy back then in the Civil War. Have they made their case? Well, Laura, thank you for having me. The voters of her district who have brought this challenge and we're proud to represent them have made a compelling case that Marjorie Taylor Greene, having taken the oath of office on January 3rd, 2021, then turned around and participated, facilitated in the insurrection on January 6th. Now, the fact that she was incredibly evasive about not remembering tweets and statements and videos that she issued leading up to the insurrection is something that the administrative law judge who held this hearing will have to factor into his decision. Was she credible in not remembering any of that? She even stated to the question that our co-counsel Andy Chelley asked her as to whether or not she pressed former President Donald Trump to declare martial law to keep him in power. She said then, I don't remember. It's, it's pretty unbelievable to consider that she does not remember whether or not she pressed 
Trump to declare martial law. Either the answer is no or yes, but it's, it's not credible that she doesn't remember at all. So all of those claims of not remembering are going to be have to factored into whether or not she was a credible witness today. But the tweets, the statements, the videos speak for themselves. And she engaged in insurrection. Well, I'm curious about this because of the timing of it. And I know that you believe that they have made their case to at least challenge it. A lot of people are probably thinking, well, hold on. I've seen something like this before recently. Wasn't North Carolina. It had to do with another member of Congress, Madison um, Cawthorn. Why was that not where this case is now? What are the distinctions? Because we're not hearing from him in a trial or a hearing, are we? We're not yet. Uh, We are proud to represent voters in his district as well who are bringing this challenge to Madison Cawthorn for his role in the insurrection after taking an oath of office as well. But the reason why that case has not moved forward is because a federal district court judge, a Trump appointee, decided that he could interfere effectively with stopping the hearing from going forward in North Carolina before the State Board of Elections on the grounds that an 1872 amnesty law designed to provide amnesty to ex-Confederates after the Civil War from the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that that amnesty law applies 150 years later to Madison Cawthorn. There is no constitutional scholar we've heard from who believes that that argument is correct and it's contrary to the text and to the legislative history of the 14th Amendment and of the amnesty law of 1872. We have filed an expedited appeal with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. They have granted our request for an expedited appeal, and that argument is being heard on May 3rd. And Madison Cawthorn may soon have to also face these kinds of questions. Well, I'll tell you, I do recall at least one constitutional scholar talking about what you're talking about, and that was during the second impeachment hearing. I believe it was the House impeachment manager, Jamie Raskin, trying to make similar arguments. We'll have to see what happens. And speaking of January 6th, you know, it may have been useful, of course, for the January 6th committee to have had some public hearings to buttress the evidence that you are seeking to put forth in court. John Boniface, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, you know, Green has company when it comes to scrutiny over January 6th. There is more new audio out today of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in the days after the insurrection that frankly completely contradicts what he's been telling us since about Donald Trump. You'll hear it. And also Trump is now saying something about it tonight when we come back. Did you tell House Republicans on a January 11th phone call that President Trump told you he agreed that he bore some responsibility for January 6th, as Chairman Thompson's letter indicates? I'm not sure what call you're talking about. Well, that deflection from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is now being reexamined, especially tonight, because as new audio from The New York Times reveals exactly what he said, well, five days after the insurrection. Take a listen. He bears responsibilities for his words and actions. No ifs, ands, or buts. I asked him personally today, does he hold responsibility for what happened? Does he feel bad about what happened? He told me he does have some responsibility for what happened. Um, And he needs to acknowledge that. 
And what's more, additional audio reveals McCarthy lied to the public by denying that he ever wanted Trump to resign for inciting the Capitol attack. The New York Times first reported that both McCarthy and Leader McConnell wanted to drive Trump out of politics in the days after January 6th. Yesterday, McCarthy called the reporting, quote, totally false and wrong, unquote, on Twitter. But then this audio dropped. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should be done. I want to bring in retired Republican Congressman Francis Rooney right now. Congressman Rooney, I'm glad to see you here. I, I wonder what you make of this new revelation and what it really actually reveals here, because I remember there was a time when flip-flopping, so to speak, could be as damaging to one's political career as being called soft on crime. So, to, And here we're seeing a clear indication that there was an evolution of thought that was not made public. What do you make of Kevin McCarthy's revelatory audios? I, I think this is one of the saddest things that I've heard in a long time. And believe me, as a congressman, I've heard a lot of sad things. Mm. He started out with an instinctive, uh, basically right and wrong compass, moral compass. And then he, the politics set in and he's disavowed it. And how do you say something is false and wrong when it's on tape? What kind of alternate reality are these people living in? Oh, the election fraud. We know what kind of alternate reality they're living in. Well, you know, interestingly enough, speaking of that reality, people have been waiting to see and hear what the former president, Donald Trump, would have to say about all of this, right? They were waiting to see. And, and here's what Trump just told the Wall Street Journal, Congressman. He said, um, he made a call. I heard the call. I didn't like the call. But almost immediately, as you know, because McCarthy came here and we took a picture, the support was very strong. I think it's all a big compliment, frankly. They realized they were wrong and supported me. Um, the notion of this being a, a compliment really speaks <clears throat> volumes on the one hand. But then again, we're also seeing a trend of where former President Trump has rewarded those who've had an evolution of thought. I'm thinking about the candidate J.D. Vance, for example, where he recently endorsed and said, you know, he, he now gets it, and I'm paraphrasing, and now he should be supported by me. What do you make of the idea of this being indicative, perhaps, of a continued hold by Trump over the Republican Party? Yeah, so Trump is now the moral compass of the Republican Party. It's okay for Kevin to flip-flop because Trump says it's okay. You know, this is more of this ends justifying the means behavior. I, I don't see how that's any different than Putin. We say he justifies the ends and murders millions of people because of uh, the means that he wants to use to get there. Well, we have to use means too. We have to have honesty in what we do. That's what we expect of public officials quite a statement to juxtapose the two men together. Do you think that there are ramifications in the sense of the thought that Vladimir Putin and Trump are similar in their hold on a party or in that the result that he's looking for is violence? No, I mean, for Kevin to allow the means to overcome, to get to the ends is improper. Just like what Putin's doing. He's using yeah. vicious means to accomplish his ends. I think Kevin's initial thoughts were great. I think he's a decent human being. But then the politics kicked in and the Trump factor kicked in and he's degraded himself. And I think it's highly unfortunate for our country and for the Republican Party. 
You've recently been a member of Congress. Obviously, part of the motivation, you mentioned politics. It's no secret that Kevin McCarthy wants to be the Speaker of the House. And the idea of the end justifying the means, do you even see that being a viable end result, assuming Republicans were able to reclaim the majority? Is the idea of that flip-flopping and the, frankly, the revelation that he had those thoughts, would that be enough to disqualify him from that running? Well, I think it would probably disqualify him among moderates, but I think he's playing to the hardcore base and the conservatives and the Freedom Caucus and people like that who made so much trouble for John Boehner. And I think he's uh, very concerned about shoring up his position with them. And he's willing to sacrifice all integrity to do it. Former Congressman Rooney, thank you for your time this evening. It's, in, it's intriguing to hear your insight in particular. I want to go back now to Jim. Thank you. I want to go back now to Jim in Ukraine, speaking of the parallels in terms of our fight for democracy here and also abroad. Thanks so much, Laura. There are many here in Lviv and in the surrounding countries, the neighbors of Ukraine, who were lucky to have escaped the horrors of this war, but of course never forget what they witnessed and endured. You're about to hear from a mother who managed to escape the area around Kyiv in the very early days of the invasion with her three children. She came from a place called Bucha. At the time we met her, we knew that that had seen some heavy fighting. We did not know what Bucha would come, neither did she. We caught up with her. She's in Spain now, but boy, the story she's hearing from home. That's coming up. More than five million Ukrainians have now fled the war in this country. On our last visit here, we met a mother and her three young children who were among that enormous number. We wanted to track them down to see how they're doing, but also to hear what stories they're learning from home. Here's what they told us. Yana, first, it's so good to see you and your kids and your safe and their smiles. Uh, I'm so happy you're in a safe place. How, how, how is everybody doing? It's much better than it was before. When we last met, your husband and your mother were still left behind in Bucha. They've been able to join you? Yes, we we are together. We got as far as Lviv uh, together, and then I went. Uh, me and the children went to Poland, and we were waiting there for my husband and mom. He was allowed to leave because we have three children, and right now in Ukraine, families with three children and more, uh, the husbands can leave. When we spoke, we knew that the fighting was bad in Bucha. But we didn't know how bad. We didn't know about all the, the crimes, it seems, that Russian forces have committed there. Have you been in touch with family and friends who were left behind? Um. Yes, I mean, we left in time and a lot of our friends managed to leave in time. But we do know people who stayed there for a long time. We know people who died there. We we have personal uh, connections there. Um, uh, and we, so for example, uh, Miroslava's teacher died um and uh, also Misha's uh, kindergarten teacher uh, has not been found yet. 
we don't know exactly how they died, uh, but we know that they died. And uh, so we have a personal story as well, um, because we know, like Misha's kindergarten teacher, we don't yet know, they, they can't find her. This is horrifying to see, because we, we can see photos uh, in the in, on the internet of places we know, a lake with benches, a park where we used to take walks, and now there's a mass grave there. It's really horrible to see. How do you explain all that to your children? My eldest child is 11 and she understands everything. She has access to information, she has a phone, she can see the internet. So uh, she she was inside this war and she knows war is war. Uh, with the youngest, I mean, they realize there's a war on uh, and they understand what's good and what's bad. But we haven't gone into the horrific details with them. We've managed to keep them safe from it so far. Uh, we told our eldest daughter about her teacher. Uh, we, it took us a day to gather our, our strength to tell her. We didn't know. Um, her, it was quite difficult. Um, with the youngest, we haven't told him yet about his kindergarten teacher. Uh, he's too little. Um, uh, we, we're not going to tell him yet. I get it. Do you have hope that you'll be able to go home again? Uh, yes, we, we get asked this question a lot. Uh, right now we can't go back to Bucha because it's a completely destroyed city. There's a problem with everything there. There's no water, no power, no gas. And also there's a lot of rubble. They're still finding dead bodies. Uh, they're still digging people's bodies out of the rubble. And also it's it's a totally booby-trapped city. But yeah, we, we want to go back to Bucha eventually because that's our, that's where our life is. Uh, that's, uh, that's where we lived. Uh, right now here we just have two backpacks. I remember those two backpacks. Uh, I do. And your socks, right? Yeah, we, we have a bit more than socks now because we got a lot of help in Spain. It's so good to see you. I'm glad your family is safe. I really am. And it's nice to see you smiling. Um, I just hope you're able to go home soon. We would like that very much. They are some of the lucky ones and from one of the worst hit parts of this country during this war. And it's a sad fact of this war that the difference between life and death or injury can be one decision. In their case, the decision to flee, to flee for their lives. Well, coming up this weekend, be sure to catch the true story of the man who took on Putin and lived to expose the truth. Navalny, it's a great film, airs Sunday at 9 p.m. only on CNN. Remarkably, Vladimir Putin faces a legitimate opponent, Alexei Navalny. I don't want Putin being president. If I want to be a leader of a country, I have to organize people. The Kremlin hates Navalny so much that they refuse to say his name. Passengers heard Navalny cry out in agony. Come on. Poisoned? Seriously? We are creating a coalition to fight this regime. 
if you are killed, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? It's very simple. Never give up. Navalny, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Jim, I'm so glad you had a chance to follow up with that mother. It really reminds us about the real humans behind these stories. It's more than just the coverage. Mm -hmm. It's about the lives. And that these stories are not measured in days or weeks or months, but but years, really. These people, if if they're lucky enough to live, their lives are disrupted for years uh, because of an invasion of choice by Vladimir Putin. We're going to keep coming at it. Thank you, Laura. Great to be with you this week. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.